0: The Old Testament reading is Exodus 12:20 uh, verses 12 through 17. The New Testament reading is Matthew 5:21 through 24. Exodus 20:12 20, through 17. Matthew 5:21 through 24. Would you hear now the reading of God's most holy word? Exodus 12:20 verse 12. And look at verse 21 through 24. These are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In the introduction to this sermon on the seventh commandment, I wish to say a little about the interconnectedness of the Ten Commandments. At first glance, the Ten Commandments may seem to be ten individual and unrelated moral laws. But upon more careful examination, we see that each of the Ten Commandments are connected. They're intertwined. They really cannot be untangled. Broadly speaking... The first four commandments and the last six are related in that to love God truly, one must also love their fellow man. And to love man truly, one must first love God. The first four commandments speak about our love for God. The last six our love for our fellow man. And I am saying that they are related to one another. The first table of the law and the second table of the law are related in this way. To say that you love God but to hate your fellow man makes you a liar and shows that the truth is not in you. This is what John says in his first epistle. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who, love, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his neighbor. And in like manner, to claim to love your neighbor, but without love for God in your hearts, makes your love for neighbor hollow and superficial. To love others truly, we must love them to the glory of God. To love others in a way that counts, we must love them with God's love and urge them to love God too, through faith in Jesus the Messiah. This is what John means when he says, Beloved, let us love one another... For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is 1 John 4, 7-8. So you could see how John especially helps us to see the relationship between the first table of the law and the second. They're interrelated with one another. To love man, we must love God. To love God, we must love our fellow man. So then, broadly speaking... Though the first and second tables of God's moral law may be distinguished from one another, truly they are intertwined. To love God truly, we must love our neighbor. To love our neighbor truly requires the love of God in our hearts. The first four commandments are also interrelated. The first commandment requires us to worship and serve Yahweh alone as God, for He alone is God, and besides Him there is no other. And commandments 2 through 4 have to do with the way of worship. We've already learned about this in previous sermons. What form should our worship take? Yes, God is to be worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped as God. What form should our worship take? Never are we to worship God with images. And what should the attitude of our worship be? We are to have reverence for God and His names. And what about time? How are we to worship God as it pertains to time? Six days are to be devoted to God-honoring work. And one day out of seven is to be set apart as holy for rest and for worship. It is a day for God's people to assemble and to give praise. So you can see then that the first four commandments are all intertwined with one another. The first commandment is the head commandment. God alone is to be worshipped. And commandments two through four establish how God is to be worshipped. You cannot untangle these commandments. Together they teach us to honor and to love God as God and as He has prescribed now I want for you to see that the last six commandments are all intertwined too. The head commandment of the second table of the law is this. Honor your father and your mother. We have learned that this commandment, the fifth commandment, requires all men to preserve the honor and perform the duties belonging to everyone in their several places and relations as superiors, inferiors, or equals. So this This rule is established, this moral principle is established by the fifth commandment. Men and women, boys and girls, are to be honored. Human life is to be honored, for man is made in the image of God. The fifth commandment establishes this principle. If we ask the question, how are we to relate to one another, we must begin here. We are to honor one another as image bearers of God. This is where we must begin. This is the head commandment of the second table of the law. The fifth commandment is the head commandment. And you could see that the commandments that follow it are related to it. They tell us how we are to honor our fellow man. The first commandment is the head commandment of the first table of law. God alone is to be worshipped. In other words, God alone is to be honored as God. How are we to do it? Commandments 2-4 through four tell us The fifth commandment is the head commandment of the second table of law. We are to show honor to our fellow man. How are we to do it? Well, commandments 6 through 10 tell us. They tell us how we are to honor our fellow man. How are we to honor our fellow man? Well, I suppose that we might deduce through reason how we are to honor our fellow man. But the scriptures tell us explicitly how we are to honor our fellow man. We are to love them. We are to honor them as God has prescribed. If the fifth commandment establishes that all men and women are to be honored and loved, how then do commandments 6-10 relate to that head commandment? They, they tell us how this honor to, is to be shown. First, murder is forbidden. Human life is to be honored. Never is human life to be taken away unjustly. The fifth commandment establishes that honor is to be shown to all people in a way that fits their God-given position in life. But the sixth commandment builds upon this by specifically forbidding the unjust taking away of human life. Human life is to be honored in all stages, brothers and sisters. Human life is to be honored from the womb to the grave. No individual acting as an individual has the right to extinguish human life except in the case of self-defense. And this we considered in some detail in the previous sermon. Next, adultery is forbidden. How does the seventh commandment, which is, you shall not commit adultery, relate to the head commandment, which is, honor your father and your mother? Well, if the sixth commandment, which is, you shall not murder, teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to its end, then the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to its beginning. I want for you to make that connection this morning, brothers and sisters. These commandments are all interrelated. We are to show honor to one another, or if you prefer the word love, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is what the second table of the law communicates. The fifth commandment establishes this. Commandments 6-10 through all show us how this honor is to be shown. The command, do not murder, means that we are to honor human life as it pertains to the end of it. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, teaches us to honor human life as it pertains to its beginning. Only God has the right to determine when a life will end. Sometimes He brings life to an end through His ministers in the civil realm who are tasked with upholding and executing retributive justice. No matter if death comes about naturally by accident or judicially, it is God who numbers our days. Individuals acting as individuals do not have the right to decide when the life of another will end. And though it is true that God also determines when a life will begin, human choice is involved in this, isn't it? Human choice is involved in bringing a life into existence. Human life is brought into existence through sexual intercourse. This is the means that God has determined to use, to create new life. We know that Adam and Eve were created directly by God in a unique way. All others are created by God through the natural process of procreation. God's design is that humans be brought into this world by a man and a woman coming together physically. Furthermore, God's design is that the man and the woman be joined together in the marriage covenant so that they do not only come together to create life, but they stay together all the days of their lives to nurture the life that has been brought into the world through them. This is God's design. Men and women are to come together physically only after they have come together covenantally in marriage. Human life is to be brought into the world in this way So that the human being might be raised and nurtured by their father and their mother to the glory of God. I'll say more about all of this in a moment. For now I'm making the very basic observation that the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is related to the fifth, in that it is about the honoring of human life as it pertains to the beginning of it. Yes, the seventh commandment requires individuals to maintain sexual purity. We'll come to that in a moment as well. But there is something bigger going on here. When God says, you shall not commit adultery, He does not only require sexual purity, He does also draw special attention to the sanctity of the marriage bond. To commit adultery is not only to be sexually immoral. It is to break the marriage covenant, you see. To commit adultery is to be unfaithful, or to cause another to be unfaithful to their spouse sexually. If God were only concerned with sexual purity, He could have said this, You shall not be sexually impure. If He were only concerned with sexual purity, that would have been the seventh commandment. You shall not be sexually impure. You shall not commit sexual immorality. That would have forbidden the sin of adultery and much more, But in saying, you shall not commit adultery, he has both required sexual purity by way of implication, while also drawing special attention to the sanctity of the marriage bond and to the way in which he has designed new life to be brought into the world. The point is this. While the command, you shall not murder, is about honoring human life as it pertains to the end, the command, you shall not commit adultery, is about honoring human life as it pertains to the beginning of it, and to the nurturing of it in the family. I hope you were able to follow that, brothers and sisters. I think it's a very important observation. It's similar to what was said about the commandment, honor your father and mother. Remember, that commandment requires us to show honor to all people in a way that fits their position in life. And when we were considering that commandment, I asked the question, then why didn't God just say that? Why did he say specifically, honor your father and mother? And I said that he, by saying, honor your father and mother, both says, by way of implication, show honor to all people in a way that fits their position in life, while drawing particular attention to the importance of the parent-child relationship. Where do human beings first learn to show honor to people, except in the family, in the home, as they learn to show proper respect to their parents? In the home, parents are to honor children and they are to teach their children to honor them. And from there, men and women learn to show honor to all people given their different positions in life. I'm saying something similar is going on here with the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. This is a very specific sin. It's a very specific kind of sexual immorality, you see. By way of implication, you shall not commit adultery says, do not be sexually immoral at all. But it draws special attention to the covenant of marriage, Doesn't it? It draws special attention to the way in which human life is to be brought into this world. Sexual union in the context of the marriage covenant. Where a man and woman are committed to one another in the marriage bond for life. That I think is what is going on here brothers and sisters. This commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is about honoring human life. Especially in its beginning stages. I will not say much about the relationship of the 8th, 9th, and 10th commandments to the 5th at this time. We'll have opportunity to elaborate on this in future sermons. But in fact, it's not difficult to see the relationship between them. If the 5th commandment requires us to show honor to all image bearers in a way that fits their God-given position in life, this means that we are to not steal from one another. We are to not lie to or about others. We are to not covet what God has given to others. These are the particular ways in which we are to show honor and love to our neighbors, no matter if they are rich or poor, powerful or weak. God's moral law, the second table of it, is all about showing love to neighbor. In just a moment we will ask, what does the seventh commandment require and forbid? But before we go there, I do wish to make sure that this is very clear In your minds, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is ultimately about showing love and honor to our fellow human beings. Do not forget that, brothers and sisters. It is interesting that in our culture, sex outside the bonds of marriage is called love, isn't it? This is what people do when they love one another, our culture says. In reality, sex outside the bonds of marriage is hate. And you would think that the world would wise up to this fact as they witness all of the death, destruction, and dysfunction that their promiscuity produces. But instead, what does the culture do? They scoff at people like me, people like us, calling us old-fashioned, uptight, prudish. But I think deep down, they know that they are miserable in their sin and that we are quite happy Trusting in the Lord and walking in His ways. This is about love, brothers and sisters. True love. True honor. When you violate the seventh commandment in thought, word, and deed, you do not love, but you hate. And again, the wages of sin is death. Physical death, spiritual death, and all forms of death arise when we decide to walk in sin. The world may not see this. We must see it, brothers and sisters. What then does the seventh commandment forbid of us? What does it forbid? When we, when we take the seventh commandment and we flesh it out, tease it out, when we see what its implications are with the help of Holy Scripture, by the way, this is not just human reason engaged in this endeavor to ask what does the seventh commandment forbid and then require, but the scriptures themselves do tease this commandment out for us. Answer 77 of our catechism is right to say the seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. To be chaste is to be pure. And the Seventh Commandment forbids not only the sin of adultery. Of course it forbids that. But when the implications are teased out, the Seventh Commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. And what does the Seventh Commandment require of us then? Answer 76 of our catechism says, The Seventh Commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity and heart speech, and behavior. Again, I think our catechism helps us to get to the heart of the issue. Adultery, technically speaking, is when a husband or wife is unfaithful to their spouse physically. When two unmarried individuals engage in sex outside the bonds of marriage, they do not commit adultery, but they engage in sexual immorality, technically speaking. But the seventh commandment does not only require marital faithfulness and forbid marital unfaithfulness by way of implication or necessary consequence, we might say. It forbids any and all perversion of God's design for sex in the context of marriage. Again, the summary of God's moral law is this, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is the sin that is named because it draws our attention to the ideal or to the design, namely sexual union in the context of covenantal union, while also forbidding all perversions of this ideal. Where is this gift of sex to be enjoyed? In the context of the marriage covenant. And so all perversions of that are forbidden by the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment forbids unchastity and requires chastity. This means that we are to maintain sexual purity, For those who are not married, this requires abstinence. For those married, this requires faithfulness to one's spouse. You will notice that our Catechism says the Seventh Commandment requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity. You might be wondering, well, how can I be responsible for preserving my neighbor's chastity? And the answer is this, by not being a source of temptation to them, by the way that we dress by the way that we speak, by the way that we interact with them. The seventh commandment lays this obligation upon us. We're to be concerned not only for our own purity, but for the purity of others, too, sexually. This means we must think carefully about how we dress, how we speak, how we interact with them. We ourselves ought not to sin in this regard, but we should not be a source of temptation for others, either i hope you've thought about this brothers and sisters this is a moral obligation not only to maintain your own chastity but your neighbors also so far as it depends upon you and notice also the phrase in heart speech and behavior the seventh commandment requires the preservation of our own neighbor and our neighbors chastity in heart speech and behavior adultery properly speaking is a behavior It is an act wherein one spouse is unfaithful to the other physically. But in this sermon series on the Ten Commandments, we have learned how to properly interpret and apply God's moral law. These moral laws are summaries. The implications of them are meant to be fleshed out. Also, these moral laws are meant to be applied to the heart. All of them are. They're meant to be applied to the heart. When Christ said in that passage that was read earlier from Matthew, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart, he did not say something new. I want you to understand that. In fact, Christ speaks this way often You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He's not instituting a new law. In other words, Christ is not pitting himself against Moses. He's not pitting himself against the Old Covenant law as it was originally intended. Rather, what Christ is doing is he is straightening out distortions of the law. He's, he's clarifying misconceptions of the law that existed in his day. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This was not something new. Rather, he was clarifying that this law, you shall not commit adultery, has always been meant to be applied in the heart, you see. Adultery, properly speaking, is an act. It is something that we do. But we must see that the sin originates within the heart. The seed of it does. If, if, if the sin of adultery is to be full grown, it means that there must have been the seed of adultery planted within the heart, first of all. That is what Christ is saying in the Gospel of Matthew. He wants us to know that the law of Moses, the moral law of God, was always to be applied in the heart. Again, it is the law of Moses which says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is Deuteronomy 6, five and Leviticus 19.18. Uh, this is the law of Moses itself that says, Here is the essence of the law. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor. And where do we love, brothers and sisters, except from the heart? We love from the heart and we love indeed also, but from the heart first. This was always the intent. Lust in the heart is not adultery. Understand this. Lust in the heart is not adultery. But lust in the heart is adultery in the heart and in seed form follow me? These are two different things. The sin of lust is not equal to the sin of adultery, but lust in the heart is adultery in the heart and in seed form. That is the point. Lust in the heart leads to adultery if left unchecked. Also, we may say that the sin of adultery is present in the heart when lust is present there. Just as an oak tree is present in the ground where there is an acorn present, so too the sin of adultery is a present where lust is present. There's a great deal of difference between an acorn and an oak tree. Wouldn't you agree with me about that? Those are two different things, but they are related things. And there is a great deal of difference between the sin of lust and the sin of adultery, but both are sins, and they are related sins. The one will grow into the other if left unchecked. Brothers and sisters, the point is this. The sin of adultery is to be rooted out of our lives in all of its forms. And we must begin with the heart. We must root it out. Even in its seed form, we must do away with it. I think the words of James are appropriate here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is James 1, 13 through 15. James says something very insightful here. Do you want to know how how sin works? Here's how it works. It doesn't appear out of nowhere. We do not sin out of nowhere but rather these sins that we commit in word or in deed, they arise from the heart. They start with desires in the heart. And when those desires are allowed to run free within our hearts, when those sinful desires are allowed to go unchecked, that is what produces sin. That's where sin comes from. It's the sinful desires in the heart left unchecked that give birth to sin and then sin, when it is fully grown, when it is mature, what does it bring forth? Rather, Except for this, it brings forth death. This is true of all sin, brothers and sisters. All sin works in this way. The first sin that Adam and Eve committed by eating of the forbidden fruit worked in this way. Before Adam took and ate, there was a sinful desire within the heart. So he sinned. And sin, being fully grown and mature, brought forth death. The scriptures warn often against the sin of sexual immorality in general, and adultery in particular. In the book of Proverbs, we find very strong warnings against this sin. You may read Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 for yourself sometime. It's very interesting. If you read Proverbs, a book that's all about wisdom, if you read Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, which is the introduction to that book of wise sayings, you will notice that it has a different style than the rest of the book. And you'll notice also that the sin of adultery is often mentioned there in the introduction. It's as if uh, the Lord is is wanting us to see that the sin of adultery is especially foolish, whereas the the the, the, the whereas the act of marital purity is 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 very wise. Also, we will see uh, that these two ways um, illustrate uh, the sin of folly and the wise the wisely lived life throughout the Proverbs. I want you to listen, though, to Proverbs 5, 1-14 through 14 and 20-23. through 23. I'll read it in its entirety here. Because I think here we get the sense of just how dangerous the sin of adultery is, just how foolish it is. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge." For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O oh sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Like lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your laborers go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to, your, to, to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Verse 20. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly he is led astray. Of course, uh, the same warning must be delivered to our daughters, too, regarding the seductive man. But I wish to read that passage to you because I think it is so powerful. You can hear a fatherly figure pleading with his son, saying, Son, live according to wisdom. Live according to wisdom in all things. But Hear me in this. Do not chase after the seductive woman, the immoral woman. Do not chase after the sexually immoral woman, the adulteress. Do not go there. That will lead only to death and to destruction. Being a bit older now, I see it more than ever. The destruction that going in this way brings to men and to women. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we must take this sin, the sin of adultery so very seriously. It leads to all manner of death and destruction. I pray that our young people would see it, even now and from a young age. You know, it is interesting how the book of Proverbs highlights sins of sexual immorality in general, and adultery in particular, to show how foolish they are. And I do not have the time to go into this, but as I have said before, it seems as if sexual immorality and adultery becomes in the Proverbs the epitome of foolish living. The epitome of foolish living. To live as a fool is to live contrary to God's law. It's to live contrary to God's ways. It's to live contrary to the way that God has designed things. That's true of all kinds of foolishness. But the way of adultery seems to become, in the Proverbs, the epitome of foolish living. Whereas faithfulness in the marriage covenant and and the woman who who is faithful and excellent becomes the epitome of wisdom. I think we must take note of this, brothers and sisters, and be especially careful as it pertains to the sin of adultery. I think I've said enough, in fact, about the sin of adultery and about what the Seventh Commandment requires and forbids, generally speaking. Please allow me now to offer just a few suggestions for application. Before I do, let me say this. You, brothers and sisters, need to work at application. I shouldn't even have to do this. Well, I guess I should. I'm a minister of the gospel. This is one of my, this is one of my obligations, to offer some suggestions for application. But in, in all honesty, the people of God ought to be able to hear the Word of God proclaimed, the truths of Holy Scripture proclaimed. They ought to reflect deeply upon the truths of Scripture and apply these truths to their thoughts, to their words, and to their deeds. This is not just my work. It's your work to do. James warns against this, and he warns not ministers only, but all Christians. He says, Don't be like that guy who looks into the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. But instead reflect, uh, contemplate. Uh, contemplate the Word of God. Look into the mirror of the Word of God and, and meditate upon it, being not just a hearer of the Word of God, but a doer of it, you see. It is very dangerous, brothers and sisters, to come to church Lord's Day after Lord's Day and to hear the Word of God read and preached and to not do it. It's a very dangerous thing. You must develop this discipline to slow down enough, especially on the Lord's Day, to contemplate the Word of God that has been read and preached. So slow down enough to meditate upon it, to ask yourself the question, how do these truths, sometimes very basic truths that you have heard before, how do these truths apply to me? How am I to put these truths into practice in thought, in word, and in deed? You must do this. You must chew upon the Word of God and digest it. You must use the Word of God to energize the whole of your living before the Lord. And so here are some suggestions for application. First of all, brothers and sisters, we must be careful to think very, we we must be careful to think correctly about gender and about sex. We must be careful to think correctly about gender and sex. This is especially difficult for us in our culture, given the perversity that is all around us. It may not be so difficult for those who are older, but our young people are being raised in a culture that is exceedingly perverse as it pertains to sex and sexuality. A lot has changed in the last 10 or 15 years, brothers and sisters. Let us not be unaware of how much has changed in our culture as it pertains to matters of sex and sexuality. The culture has always been perverse But lately it seems to be exceedingly perverse. It seems to be exceedingly confused regarding matters of sex and sexuality. Christian parents must have a clear understanding of what the Scriptures say about these things. And they must instruct their children concerning what God's Word says. God's Word is our authority for truth, brothers and sisters. It is our belief that God created the world in a particular way. That he made men and women to correspond to one another physically. That he instituted marriage. And that sex is to be enjoyed within that context. In other words, we have this fundamental belief that God designed the world to function in a particular way. It is morally fixed. That it is wise to live according to God's design and His law. And that it is sin and folly to rebel against it. That, what I have just said there, is so very counter the culture. You know it to be. Uh, This, what I have just said, is, is very much out of style. And that is okay. I'm okay with being out of style. I hope that you are. And we should raise our children to be very comfortable with being out of style as it pertains to the culture around us. We must teach our children God's word. Our culture will seek to Cause our children to conform to it, but we must give God's Word a place in our homes. We must teach the Word of God to our children. They must hear it preached in the congregation. They must hear it reinforced in the home. We must show them what God's law requires and forbids, and we must also show them that God's law is, in fact, good, beautiful, and lovely. How will we do this? How will we show them that God's law is good? Beautiful and lovely. How will we show them that God's ways are in fact the best ways. The most pleasant ways. The happiest life is found not running after the world and the things of the world. But the happiest life is found when we live in obedience to, to God. And, and to the way that He has designed the world. When we are in sync with that there is great blessing. in it. How will we convince our children of that? The world wants to seduce them doesn't it? The world wants to say, no, here is where true happiness is found, but we must win that battle. We will win it by teaching our children God's law, by telling them that this is the best way, by explaining to them why this is the best way. Also, we will win the argument with the culture by demonstrating it to them in our homes and in our community, in our church community. We must show them How good it is to live according to God's design. And how ultimately miserable it is to rebel. We must draw their attention to these realities. It is so very good to live in obedience to God. It is so very miserable to rebel against God and His Word. We must teach them these things with our words. We must teach them these things also by our way of life. We must lead by good example. And where we have failed... We must be appropriately honest with them concerning the folly of our past ways. And this gives us an opportunity then to tell them also about the grace of God that has been shown to us in Christ Jesus. We must urge our young people to repent and believe upon Him. We must lovingly urge them to walk in God's ways in Christ Jesus. We must do this as it pertains to all of God's moral laws, but especially as it pertains to matters of sex and sexuality We should urge our children to marry, and to marry in the Lord. Single people and married people must think correctly about sex. We must remember that sex is not only for pleasure, it is for procreation. The two things go together. I was very careful with my wording there. Again I said, sex is not only for pleasure... It is for pleasure, brothers and sisters. It is meant to be enjoyed physically, emotionally, and spiritually by a husband and wife. It is very important, in fact, to the marriage relationship. I wonder if you know that the Scriptures warn husbands and wives not to neglect this. And we go to 1 Corinthians 7 to read about that, there Paul says, among other things, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There, Paul is actually talking about the gift of sex. He says, do not deprive one another, speaking to husbands and wives. In the sexual union between a husband and wife, the spiritual, emotional, relational, and covenantal union is consummated or made complete. If I may speak in this way, the sexual union seals the marriage covenant. In the marriage covenant, the husband and wife become one flesh. They are no longer two individuals, but one in the marriage bond. And the sexual union seals that covenant bond. By the way, this is one reason it is so inappropriate to engage in sex outside of marriage to engage in sexual intercourse outside the bonds of marriage is to apply the seal of the one flesh union without the covenantal reality of it are you tracking with me here it's a misuse of the gift of sex it's to apply the seal of the one flesh union which is covenantal without the covenantal reality of it It can actually be compared to applying baptism or giving the Lord's Supper to those who do not believe in Christ. Why is that so inappropriate? To give baptism or the Lord's Supper to those who do not believe in Christ. Well, to do so would be to to misuse the sacraments or to profane the sacraments because these signs of the new covenant are to be given to those who are partakers of the new covenant. These signs are signs of a covenant and it's only those who are in the covenant who are to partake of the signs, and to enjoy the benefits, the spiritual benefits that come along with them. They're not for the world. They're for those who believe, who are in the new covenant. And the same can be said regarding the gift of sex. It seals the marriage covenant. It is to be enjoyed by those who have entered into the marriage covenant. In fact, I would argue that it only can be truly enjoyed by those who are in the covenant of marriage The substantial part of the marriage relationship is the covenant itself. The physical act of sex seals it. So to partake of the seal without the substance is hollow, not to mention profane. And that is why so many who engage in sex outside the marriage covenant feel hollow and relationally empty after the thrill of the fornication wears off. By the way... The world does feel hollow and empty, though they will not admit it publicly. They do. It's a major problem. Those who are living a promiscuous lifestyle are plagued by this. They feel hollow and empty relationally. Why? Because they're partaking of the seal of the marriage covenant without the substance of the marriage covenant. It's a misuse of it. It's profane. It's empty. It's hollow. It's thrilling, perhaps, for a time. But that soon wears off and it leads to all manner of dysfunction. And so I say that, yes, sex is meant to be enjoyed, brothers and sisters. It's to be enjoyed by a man and woman, bound together as one flesh in the covenant of marriage. It's to be enjoyed physically, emotionally, and relationally. In our culture, the problem is on the other side of the spectrum, though. Many act as if sex is only for pleasure. They forget that it's also for procreation. Isn't that interesting? That the two things are united together in this one act, pleasure and procreation, (laughs) Um, could not have God designed two things, to function separately, to bring about his purposes? I suppose he could. But they were joined together in one thing. They are also, this is also for procreation. This is the way that new life is created through sexual union. Think about that for a moment. Human beings have the ability to procreate. Human beings have the ability to procreate. Procreate. Sometimes we just don't even think about these simple and basic truths. We need to reflect upon them. We have this ability. And here I want you to agree that it is an awesome power. This power to procreate is an awesome power. And with awesome power comes also great responsibility. God is the creator of all things seen and unseen. He is the source of all life. But He has given man made in His image... The, be, the ability to create life. This is an awesome power, and again with great power comes great responsibility. I'm afraid that men and women have forgotten about the power and responsibility of procreation. Many in our culture wish to use sex for pleasure while ignoring the great power and responsibility of procreation. When a man and woman come together and create life, they are then responsible to nurture that life and to bring it to maturity. Our children are to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They are to learn to live for God's glory and in obedience to His moral law. They must learn of their need for Christ because of their, their sin. The point is this, as we consider the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, we must remember the great power and responsibility of procreation. Sex is to be enjoyed by husband and wife in the covenant of marriage, in part because sex is for procreation. And the children that are brought into this world through procreation are to be nurtured to maturity by a father and mother. As I've said, the seventh commandment is about honoring life in its beginning stages. So we must think correctly about these things. Our world is so very lost in regard to these things. But we must think correctly about gender, about sex, about marriage, about procreation, and this will become ever more difficult and ever more important for the church as the culture around us continues to run full speed down the path of sin and of folly. My second suggestion for application is this. Those who have sinned as it pertains to the seventh commandment and those who have been sinned against in this regard must not be given over to despair, but must run to Christ and abide in Him from this day forward. I'm thinking here especially of those who've been sinned against as it pertains to marital unfaithfulness, who are now re- raising their children alone. Yes, ideally, husbands and wives will remain together for life. Yes, ideally, children will be raised by fathers and mothers committed to one another in the covenant of marriage. It is important that this ideal be preached for the sake of current and future generations. But we know that things are not always ideal in this world. Sin is a rebellion against God's ideal. And its consequences are devastating. But we must not forget that God is able to bring much good from evil and much light from darkness. We must remember this truth. It is gospel truth. It is good news. God is able to bring much good from that which is evil. He is able to bring much light from darkness. And those who are living now in the aftermath of sin, either of their own or the sin of another, must not forget that. We must remember that God is able to work all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. We must remember that. I'm speaking now both to single parents and the children in single-parent homes. I think it is safe to say that life in this fallen world is never ideal. Never is it ideal. Every Christian who lives in this world has to deal with sin and its consequences. God has given us his ideal, his moral law, and we have all violated it in thought, word, and deed. We all deal with the ramifications of that. Brothers and sisters, we have to be strong in faith in the midst of the complications and troubles of life. We have to believe in the gospel. We have to trust in Christ and move on in life in the power that he has provided for us. The law must be proclaimed. God's ideal must be proclaimed, but the gospel must be proclaimed too. And what is the gospel except that God has provided a Savior so that our sins might be forgiven, so that our hearts might be renewed. And one of the blessings of the gospel is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father works all things for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. I trust that the Lord is able to work powerfully in situations that are less than ideal, Again, we must be strong in faith, brothers and sisters. We cannot allow ourselves to be given over to despair. There is no room for that in the heart of a Christian. Thirdly, I wish to exhort married people to be very careful to protect the sanctity of the marriage covenant. In the spirit of 1 Corinthians 7, I say, be generous with one another in this regard. Be kind and compassionate to each other always. Be tender-hearted and forgiving. And be sure that you are faithful to one another, not only physically, but in the mind and heart too. Because there's so much at stake here, brothers and sisters. Let us be very careful to protect the sanctity of the marriage covenant. Fourthly, I wish to say that the church has the opportunity and the responsibility to be salt and light to the culture around us. We are to shine forth the light of the gospel, but we also have the privilege of showing how good life is when lived according to God's design. The family, as you know, is breaking down in our culture all around us. So let us show the world how good the family can be. The institution of marriage has been degraded. Let us show the world how wonderful a Christ-centered marriage can be. We must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with our lips, but let us also be sure to show the world how good and pleasant it is to walk with God and in obedience to his laws. I say, may the Lord use us in this way to show the world the folly of their sinful ways, so that they might turn from their sin and to Christ. Fifthly, I do wish to speak specifically to the sin of abortion, which continues to plague this land. I spoke to it briefly last Sunday under the heading you shall not murder, under the Sixth Commandment. Indeed, the Sixth Commandment requires us to honor and to seek the preservation of human life in all stages. Indeed, the Sixth Commandment should cause us to oppose abortion, the killing of human life in the womb. But notice this, the vast majority of the children murdered in the womb through abortion, are murdered because they are, quote-unquote, unwanted. They are unwanted. And here I am simply making the observation that if the seventh commandment were kept, if men and women were to engage in sex only within the the covenant of marriage, then there would not be so many, quote-unquote, unwanted pregnancies. I agree that... Men and women ought to have the choice to bring a child into the world. That is the argument that we hear coming from so many in our culture today. Women especially ought to to be able to choose if they are going to be mothers. They ought to be able to choose if they are going to bring a human life into the world. And I say amen. That choice must be made before conception and not afterward. These things are all interrelated, brothers and sisters. Abortion is a great evil that ought to be outlawed in this land... It ought to be a crime. But the problem is so much bigger than this. The problem is sin. The problem is sin, brothers and sisters. And let us not forget that only Christ can solve that problem. Men and women need Christ. They need to hear the gospel. They need to be exhorted to turn from their sin and to Christ for forgiveness. They need to be taught to observe all that He has commanded us from there. Let's start with the church, brothers and sisters. Let us be careful to cling to Christ and to obey His moral law with the strength that He provides. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for all of the benefits that come to us through faith in Christ Jesus, forgiveness of sins, the, life, the hope of life everlasting. We thank You for the gift of regeneration too. We thank You for the new heart that You have given us. This moral law has been written on our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been freed also from bondage to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin and to the evil one. We are no longer slaves to fear. You have released us from these these bonds. Help us, O God, to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake now. We are weak. We are frail. Corruptions remain within us. Give us victory, O Lord. I pray for the members of this congregation, young and old, that we would keep your moral law, that we would keep it from the heart, especially as it pertains to the sin of adultery. O Lord, we pray that it would be rooted out from us, even in the heart and the mind. May we love you and serve you and honor and obey you in thought, word, and deed. In the name of Christ we pray and all of God's people say.